This morning's scripture will be from uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. That's on page 985 of the Blue Pew, Pew Bible in front of you. Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am a prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The Word of God. Well, let's pray together as we come to... Uh, One of the last sections here, Paul's letter to Colossians, we'll look at these verses this week and then Darwin will wrap up the series next week. So let's pray ask God to be with us. Father, we come weak, we come needy, we come with doubts, we come with struggles, we come tired, Uh, we come overjoyed, some of us. Uh, We come excited to be here, some of us uh, barely getting here this morning. Father, we come to you Uh, knowing that you know all these places from which we come. You know our hearts, uh, you know our struggles, you know our delights, and we pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would meet us in the midst of that this morning. We pray that we would come to know your Son, Jesus, and that we would hear from Him, that He would be the one who is exalted, that He would be the one uh, that we would come to know more. That's what we need more than anything else. It is Him. And so we pray that He would be present among us now by Your Spirit. Bless us, we pray. In His name, amen. I had a pastor friend in Indiana who was actually also the father of one of my RUF students. And uh, he told me early on, we found this out early on, that he actually had connections with TCU from, uh, from long ago. He had worked with a ministry here back in the early 80s, and so we made the connection that I was a TCU grad, which was pretty cool because there are not a lot of horned frogs in Indiana. So that was fun. And when we first figured this out, he told me this story of a summer evening when he was here on staff and he was driving down university and the sunset was occurring at this time. And he talked about how unbelievably beautiful this sunset was. He started describing all of these colors that he saw and how it was just over the horizon at this time of day where it just looks massive. And he said people were literally stopping their cars on university to get out and look at this sunset. And I don't know if that's totally true. Some of you might have actually been around for that. But it made for a really good story. And he was overcome with the beauty of this sunset. And what was kind of funny is that he regularly forgot this connection that we had with TCU. And so we had all these other connections. And so it was probably five or six times in my four years in Indiana that I heard this story from him. He would start back in and tell it again. And the first couple of times I tried to like say, yeah, you mentioned that. You told me that story. And then I realized you just got to let him go. Just let him tell the story again. Uh, It was sort of like a groundhog day happening over and over again where you know it's coming. But what I loved about it, and what was incredible about it, is that while he obviously didn't remember the connection we had, this sunset and the beauty of it, how staggeringly beautiful it was, was seared in his memory, such that he had to talk about it 
It was so overwhelmingly beautiful to him that he always wanted to tell this story to me. Now, if you just think for a moment about what is the most beautiful thing that you have ever experienced, you probably have some story like that. It could be in a, in a song that you heard. It could be in a novel that you read or just a short story that captured something so beautifully that it struck a chord in the depths of your soul such that all you want to do is talk about it. It could be maybe some, some scenery, some beautiful place that you've been. I got to be in Utah last week with some pastor friends, and there were multiple guys who had not been there before who would step out on this back deck and see these mountains and say, this never gets old. It might be that for you. It could be, you husbands, you should say this, that on the day of your wedding, when those back doors open and you saw for the first time your bride and your knees went weak and you lost your breath and a tear came to your eye because you were overwhelmed with the beauty of your bride. Why does this happen? This happens because God made us to love and desire beauty. He is a God of beauty who created us as desiring creatures that are drawn towards beauty. That's who we are. And while sin has messed that up for us, we have these disordered desires, we, we set our loves and our affections on things we shouldn't, we love things too much sometimes, we love other things not enough. But what is true is that we love beauty. And part of what Jesus has done in coming to us is to reorder and reset our desires. He's come to reorder those things for us so that we can then behold Jesus as beautiful to us. You see who Jesus is. Darwin just prayed this for our children. You see who Jesus is and all that He has done for you and you are overwhelmed by the beauty of it. And that doesn't happen naturally. It happens by the work of the Spirit in us. Here's how Rowan Williams describes what happens when we realize this. He says, It is the vision of an indescribable loveliness that calls our hearts out of darkness, breaking down the barriers of false love, rightly ordering those desires and impulses by which we live. Indescribable loveliness. What Paul talks about in this passage is doing ministry in this way. Doing ministry that recognizes that, is what, that what is most compelling to people is going to be seeing Jesus as beautiful and believable. And that's actually a phrase that came from another RUF campus minister, Kevin Twitt. And he talked about hymns and the purpose of worship being to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us. But what Paul is talking about in this passage is that that's really the task for ministry. It's to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to those around us. That's the point of these verses. So Paul has come to this point in the letter where he's told us about all that we have in Christ. If you remember back to chapter 3, he said all of these amazing things. This gift of new life, this forgiveness that we have, and this freedom... And what he says is that those blessings were never meant to be enjoyed selfishly. He says, basically, you are blessed in order to be a blessing. We as the church are called to put on display all the glory of who Jesus is in all of his beauty. And in that, we show him to be more beautiful and believable. So here's what we'll see this morning, that because of this new life that we have in Jesus... 
We're called then to pray and walk and speak specifically in a way to show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable to our neighbors. That's what's underlying Paul's words here. Before we go any further, though, I want to stop for a moment and recognize that anytime you start talking about ministry, there are going to be people who are going to get uncomfortable with that. Without a doubt. Now, some of you here who are Christians will no doubt get uncomfortable because when I start talking about ministry or even using the dreaded E word, evangelism, yeah, yeah, falling out back there. You feel the guilt, right? Whether it's due to how busy your schedule is and how you're not doing what you think you should be doing, or maybe that you, you look back on ways that you've done ministry in the past and how you've manipulated people and you cringe at it. Uh, I've got a friend who described this story of when he was in high school. They went to the shopping mall with a big stack of tracks to do ministry. And they were going to hand out these tracks and, and talk to people in this mall. And he came across this older guy who was sitting on a bench. And this guy was pretty rough and was not interested in what my friend had to say to him. And so my friend was very adamant in saying, no, I'm going to get this track into this guy's hands. And so he keeps at it and keeps at it. This guy's not having it. And so what my friend did is get on the escalator and go upstairs to the floor above so that he was just overhanging this guy who was sitting on the bench. And he took a track and he dropped it right down. And it landed on the guy. You hear that and you cringe, right? I mean, that, I hope you cringe at that. If that's you, if a sense of guilt is the first thing that arises when we start talking about ministry, I want you to hear this. What Paul calls us to in this passage is a way of doing ministry that is, on the one hand, very ordinary. It happens in everyday life. And at the same time, it's very real and honest. In other words, it's not about manipulating people at all. Okay? Others of you get uncomfortable because you might be here exploring Christianity... And you've been on the receiving end of the dropped tract, right? Where you've felt manipulated. You felt like this person is obviously going for a notch on the belt right now and is not at all really concerned with me or my well-being. Now, if that's you, I want to first acknowledge that we Christians have not always done a good job of doing ministry. That is certainly the case But what Paul has in mind here, again, is something so different from that. And I would ask you even just to suspend those objections long enough to hear what he has to say. Because I think what you'll see is that what he calls us to is something very different and much more beautiful, much more loving than a lot of what we've done in the past. So how do we show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable? Three points for you. They're in your bulletin. First is this, we show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable by praying steadfastly. Look at verse 2. This is what he says there. He says to continue steadfastly in prayer. This is similar to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 where he says pray without ceasing, right? So it's this call to ongoing, continuous prayer. And specifically, he's probably talking about, he's talking about prayer in general, But there's a specific way in which he wants us to be praying our requests. We're called to make our requests known to God. We're to ask God for these things in an ongoing, habitual way. And that's what he's saying in this first verse. And he says in the midst of it, to be watchful. And if you remember back to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is there with his disciples. What does he call them to do? He says, to watch and pray with me. 
And then the other context and when the, where this warning, this, this call to be watchful or alert is used is usually in light of Christ's return and the full coming of His kingdom. So what, what's likely happening here is that Paul is saying to pray in light of and for the coming of God's kingdom. To pray with that as an end. And he says to do it with thanksgiving. So you would look around and see the ways that the kingdom has already come and is already present now. And you give thanks for that all the while praying that the further effects of the kingdom would be felt. So that's this verse, verse 2, this general call. And I want to pause just for a minute and call, call our attention to something here. Paul is not calling us to prayer just because that's what religious people do. Okay? Nor is he calling us to prayer because it only and exclusively changes us, the ones who are praying. You've probably heard that before, right? Like prayer does a whole lot more for you than it does anything outside of us. There's some truth to that in that prayer definitely changes us, but Paul's claim here is that prayer actually changes things. It's not just something that we're doing to see change and growth and Christ-likeness in our life. It's more than that. Paul says that, that God hears us when we pray and our prayers have real effects, not because they're powerful in and of themselves, but because God in His sovereignty has chosen to use our prayers in this way. And that's what leads him to say what he does in 3 and 4. If you take a look back there, you see this. He starts with prayer in general, but then when he goes to verses 3 and 4, he focuses in on prayers about ministry. And then that's the focus of the rest of this passage. What he does is he asks for prayer that God would open a door for the Word. That God would open a door for the Word, for His ministry and for Timothy's ministry here, and that He would help him proclaim it clearly. So what is this Word? What's the message that He's to proclaim? It says, the mystery of Christ. And you'll remember... Darwin talked a good bit about this in chapter 1 where Paul first says this, so we won't deal with it too much now. But what you need to think when you see mystery of Christ that's now revealed is the message of who Jesus is and what He came to do. Who Jesus is and what He came to do. This is the message of the one who is Lord over all, is what Paul has said. It's, it's the message of one who's reconciling to Himself all things in heaven and on earth through the blood of His cross, the One who's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into His own kingdom where we have forgiveness, where we're set free from captivity and we have real hope for change. This is the message of One who has been killed and the One who has risen. That is this message that Paul is declaring. It's the mystery of Christ. And what's fascinating about this is that what Paul recognizes here is that just the bare proclamation of this message is not enough. That might be a little provocative, that the message proclaimed is not enough. What do I mean by that? What do I mean is that God must be the one who opens the door for this message. He's got to be the one who provides opportunities to speak this message. He's got to be the one who's actually going to change hearts so that this message would be received and believed. And it's for that reason that Paul is calling the Colossians and us to pray that that would happen. And this is where we enter the picture. And this is where what I want us to see, which I think fascinating about this, is that vital to any ministry is prayer. 
Prayer is an absolutely crucial part of ministry. God uses our weak, feeble prayers to open the door for ministry. And every single person in this room can do that. Every person can pray in this way. This is how God softens hearts and provides opportunities for the Word to go forward in that way. Now, some of us hear this, and we probably tend in the direction of underestimating our role in ministry. You think God is sovereign. He's going to take care of this anyway. I don't really know that me praying is going to make any difference whatsoever. What does Paul say to that? What Paul says to that is that God actually does use our prayer. Again, not because of any, uh, any sort of skill or uh, anything that is magic in what we pray, but because in His sovereign plan, in His decree as to how all things will come to pass, He has ordained that our prayers would actually bring about change in the world. Your prayers matter. They make a difference. And that's why he calls us to that, that we actually play a very real role in ministry. So if your tendency is to underestimate our role in that way, hear what he says along those lines. But then there are others of us, though, who might overestimate our role in ministry. And this is the view that says it really is all up to me. Whether somebody believes this message or not is completely on me. I've got to convince them at all costs to make this happen. And I think this is especially true if you're a little bit type A, you're a doer, and actually thinking about praying for somebody seems a lot less effective than being with somebody and talking to them about it. But here's the danger that can result from this. You end up manipulating people rather than loving them. It becomes very easy to do that. It becomes easy to become overcome with anxiety and to have no rest because everything is on your shoulders. We have a tendency to to view people, if this is our tendency, to, uh, to view people as beyond the reach of God's grace. I can't convince this person, so it's got to be beyond hope. If you overestimate your role in ministry, those are going to be your tendencies. How does Paul respond to us in that way? He responds by reminding us that it is God's mission to change hearts. We're called to be faithful. We're called to pray. We're called to leave the results to God. He's the one who's going to open this door and bring about real change. And remember, and Paul mentions this, he's writing this from prison. There's not a lot of hope that he's going to see fruit from his ministry here unless what he says about God is true. That God is the one who will open this door and make this happen. So what does this mean for us? It means for us as a church, as Fort Worth Presbyterian Church, that praying is the starting point for any and all ministry for us. And don't, don't, don't downplay that. Prayer is the place where it begins, and it's an essential part for us if we want to show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable to our neighbors, it's praying for them. It's praying for our friends and family members who don't yet know Christ. It's praying for our neighbors. It's praying for those parents on our kids' sports teams. It's praying for our ministries of our church that are doing this. This is what God calls us to. So by praying steadfastly, we show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable. Secondly, we show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable by walking wisely. Look at verse 5. 
He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And it's important here when we see walk. What Paul means when he says walk is that he means that this is to encompass the whole of our lives. He says, conduct yourselves wisely. That actually might be what your translation says. And what he, what he means is that whatever this is, this way of walking is a way of living your entire life and it's to be done wisely. What does he mean by that? Biblical wisdom is kind of this combination of something that is spirit-given. Jesus talks that way in the Gospel of John, and James speaks that way of wisdom from above. So it's the spirit-given wisdom, but then there's also this very practical element to it. If you've ever read Proverbs, you'll see that. It's very everyday kind of stuff. And so I think we could combine those things and say it is everything that we know to be true about Jesus and how that works itself out in the world. It's understanding the way the world works. And so here's what, uh, here's what Paul has said in chapter 2 about where wisdom is to be found. He says that all the treasures of wisdom are found in Jesus. There's a quote from Dallas Willard that gets at this. He's actually talking about discipleship, but this applies to wisdom as well. He says, discipleship or wisdom is learning to live the kind of life Jesus would live if He were me. Learning to live the kind of life Jesus would live if He were me. That's what wisdom is. And he says, be wise in particular towards outsiders. Be wise towards outsiders. But notice how he applies this. What's the specific way that we would do this? By making the best use of the time. Not talking here just about time management skills. David Allen's getting things done is really good. But that's not what he's saying here. What he's talking about... What this literally means is buying up or even snatching up the time, redeeming the time. And in Ephesians, he talks about it in light of the evil of the world, but Colossians is a bit different. He's talking here about recognizing the amount of time that you will spend with your non-Christian friends and neighbors. And his question is, how will you use that time? What will you do with that opportunity that you have? Now, what I don't think he's talking about here is obnoxiously and manipulatively sharing the gospel with them in those moments. I don't think that's what he's doing. Why do I say that? Because that's not what Jesus did with people as he interacted with them. What did he do with them? Well, he did certainly share the good news of the kingdom with them, but it was always in the context of love and relationship. And that's what you see over and over again in the Gospels. You see Jesus living ordinary life with people. You see Him eating meals with people. You see Him eating meals with people that others didn't really want to eat with. You see Him talking with a woman at a well as He goes to get a drink, and it becomes an opportunity to love her. You see Him meeting His disciples in the midst of their work. They're fishing. He goes and He spends time with them. What's the point? The point is that ministry and the way Jesus did it happens in ordinary, everyday sort of circumstances. And I want that to be liberating for us this morning. That there really is a sense in which you don't have to go anywhere to do ministry. I know some of you have packed schedules right now. And the thought of adding anything more just seems overwhelming. Well, according to the way Jesus went about doing ministry you can just begin paying attention to those people that God has already sovereignly placed in your life around you. 
And he began moving towards them in everyday, ordinary, loving ways. That's what he did. But the other thing that he did, though, and this is where it gets a little more uncomfortable, is that Jesus allowed himself to be interrupted by people. You ever notice that in the Gospels? It happens all the time. He's off doing something and somebody else comes along with some sort of need and he listens to them. He has compassion on them. He cares for them. He's patient with them and he loves them in the midst of that. Why do I say that's uncomfortable? Uh, Because I, and I know many of you, uh, cling to time. We, we, we possess it. We view it as our own. We hoard it. And when we get an opportunity to have just a little stretch of time for ourselves, we rejoice and we don't want anybody to infringe on it at all. Time, in some ways, might be more valuable than money to us, right? We love our time. And if you are a scheduler, the thought of being interrupted regularly is not comfortable. Um, Many of you probably have read or at least heard of C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. This is this book where he writes uh, of a uh, fictional account, of course, of two devils, uh, one being an uncle who is training the, uh, the younger devil, his nephew, Wormwood, in how to tempt people. So they're, they're writing these letters back and forth, and they actually talk about this issue of time. So here's, here's what he says. Now you will have noticed that nothing throws him, that's the guy that they're tempting, nothing throws him into a passion so easily as to find a tract of time which he reckoned as having at his own disposal unexpectedly taken from him. It's the unexpected visitor when he looked forward to a quiet evening or the friend's talkative wife turning up when he looked forward to a private conversation with the friend that throws him out of gear. They anger him because he regards his time as his own and feels that it is being stolen. You must, therefore, zealously guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. Let him have the feeling that he starts each day as the lawful possessor of 24 hours. As Steve Foltz says, you've gone from preaching to meddling, right? Uh, That hits close to home. Why do we do this? We do this because we are so scared to death of not being in control of our own lives. If I can't schedule everything down to a T, then I get freaked out. Jesus calls us to release the grip that we have on the control of our lives. And you know why you can do that? Because He has given Himself for you and you can be confident that He will be with you in any and all circumstances and that He is working all things together for good in your life so you can ultimately trust Him in that. If the gospel's not true, then we're never going to give up our time and be, uh, be welcomed to those who are interrupting us in the midst of our schedules. Jesus has set us free from that. We've got to cling to that, cling to Him, and not our time in the midst of that. What happens then? It means that when you get home after this busy day and you see your neighbor outside, you don't have to immediately pull into the garage, close the garage door, and go inside and not talk to them. It means that at your kid's baseball game, rather than kind of standing off to the side and away from people, you could actually move over and begin engaging with your friend's parents. This is what it can look like for us to give the gift of unhurried, undivided attention to people. And you know what happens when we do that? 
You allow the Jesus who is in you, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, to show forth in glorious and beautiful ways to your non-Christian friends and neighbors. They see Jesus in you. They get a taste of who He is by the way in which you genuinely love them in the form of uninterrupted, unhurried time. Here's what Nowen says about this as he looks back on his life. He said, My whole life I've been complaining that my work was constantly interrupted until I discovered the interruptions were my work. I promise you that people will notice if you give them your uninterrupted, unhurried time. They will notice the way in which you love them there. We show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable by praying steadfastly, walking wisely. Thirdly and finally, we show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable by speaking graciously. Verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I'm going to point out just a couple things and then a final assumption that's underlying all this. Uh, First thing here, our speech should be gracious, he says. What, What this doesn't mean is that your speech should be soft. Or, uh, or mushy or sentimental, or maybe you should be soft on truth or something like that. That's not what he's saying here. What gracious means, speaking with grace, means speaking with grace towards people and by grace towards people. It means extending this warmth and compassion and hospitality in your words that Jesus has extended towards you. And that's actually what this phrase, seasoned with salt, gets at as well. What does salt do? It makes things taste better. Salted caramel, right? Something that's incredible, and then you add salt to it and it's even more incredible. You want more of it. It adds flavor. It's compelling. Remember the old Lay's commercials? The bet you can't eat just one of the chips that are mainly salt? (laughs) Same thing. It's compelling. You want more. It's, it's appealing. It's warm. It's winsome. And that's how this word is used in other contexts as well, in other literature of the time. Our speech should be in some manner compelling towards our non-Christian friends. They should see from it the beauty and the believability of Jesus. Now, why is this important for us to consider? I think it's important because we don't always think about how we're heard. And there are all kinds of ways to apply this. I think it's unique in our time that I would apply it in the way I'm about to, but I'm going to. Uh, how do you interact on Facebook and Twitter? That's kind of odd, right? Could your speech, your posts, your Twitter feed, your comments on pictures, your comments on articles, the sort of articles you choose to post, be described as gracious or seasoned with salt? And I'm not talking about you need to just start posting Bible verses and cheesy Christian quotes and making it into like Christian bookstore uh, Twitter feed or something. (laughs) But it's worth asking, what do I communicate? This is one of the most public realms of our speech. Does this communicate graciousness? Is my speech and the way that I interact with people seasoned with salt? Again... It's not saying that you shouldn't have opinions on important social issues or political issues. You should have opinions on that. The question is, how will you communicate those opinions? How will you put yourself forward? Will it be gracious and seasoned with salt? Or will it not be that? I think it's important for us to think about. 
And Jesus, again, is our example in this way. Jesus, obviously, was not at all soft on truth. And yet, the most immoral people were drawn to what He had to say. He spoke with grace, and His speech was seasoned with salt. Secondly, our lives should be question-provoking. You notice this in verse 6, so that you may know how, to, how you ought to answer each person. There's an assumption here that these outsiders, the way Paul puts them, those who are not a part of the community of faith, are looking into this community and they are asking questions. What might that question be? I think probably the fundamental question is why? Why do you live the way you do? Why do you interact the way you do? Why do you forgive the way you do? Why do you say no to certain practices and yes to others? Why do you have hope in the midst of circumstances that look completely and utterly hopeless? Why do you believe that a crucified Messiah is the hope of the world? Why do you believe that Jesus rose bodily from the grave? Our life together, according to Paul, should be question-provoking. And this is really what Peter gets at in 1 Peter 3, where he says, always have a reason. Be prepared to give a, a reason for the hope that's in you. If you look at the book of Acts, over and over again, it's this life of a community and how they live together that provokes questions. That's the biblical model in some ways of how, of how this is to work uh, in the world, of how our life should be in the world. There's a great quote from Christine Pohl who talks about this. She says, The best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. The character of our shared life as congregations, communities, and families has the power to draw people to the kingdom or to push them away. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. We all play a part in that. We can show Jesus to be more beautiful and believable by our life together. Final assumption here. Paul assumes that we would be in community or have some sort of interaction with non-Christians in order to have any kind of conversation along these lines. And that's where a lot of us need to start. Befriend, pay attention to, love the non-Christian friends that you have around you. Move towards them. Establish a relationship in that way. This is what he calls us to, to love people around us. Why can He call us to this? Jesus can call us to this because this is what He has done for you and for me. Because every single one of us in here was an outsider at one point. And do you know what Jesus did? He brought you in. He loved you in such a way that He would lay down His life for you. That He would forgive you for your sins. He has been raised for you. He has given you new hope for change. He has brought you into this community and said, you are going to transform in this community. He's covered your shame by what He's done. He's restored your dignity as a human being by what He's done. And He has promised that He will fully and finally heal you on the last day. This is what Jesus has done for us. And because of that, we can move into the lives of people around us. Uh, this can be really frightening if we take it seriously. And I know everybody in this room, our leadership, everybody wants to be more outward facing as a church. We want more and more people in here who look very, very different, who struggle with every kind of sin. 
And we want every kind of person to come to know Jesus here, but that is so frightening for us. What we have to do in the midst of this is cling to Jesus and know that He intends this for our good. As Darwin said at the beginning, He has made us zealous for good works. There's joy in the midst of giving our lives away because Jesus has given His life away for us. I want to close just with this, uh, what this could look like in our midst. This is from a guy named Shane Wheeler. He's a pastor in Decatur, Georgia. He wrote this book called The Briar Patch Gospel. And this is what he says about how this worked out in his context. He had this musician who was not a Christian. He was, skeptic, he was skeptical towards all things regarding religion. But he was a musician who was trying to make money, as most musicians are. And so he started helping out with music at this church. And, and he was a way for him to make money. Usually he would just go out the doors after and during the sermon and during communion and come back in and play later. But he said, though, at some point, Brian started remaining in the sermons, in for the sermons. And so this went on for a few months. A few months down the road, he grabs Shane and he says this to him after worship. He says, I wasn't raised in church and have always believed that God was the stuff of fairy tales. But there's something different about you people. God seems real here. I mean, nobody tries to pretend they're perfect or always right. Nobody has all the answers, and you really seem to like each other. I've never seen a group of people who are so different from one another actually love each other like this. So this is what Shane says in response to this and how this conversation went. He says, We talked about Jesus, but Brian already knew Him better than he realized. He had encountered the reality of Jesus in our community of faith. And it was an experience that was more real and more convincing than the most expert arguments from the best theologians. As I watched Brian find his place in our midst, I realized something interesting. No one had tried to witness to him in any formalized, programmatic way. We had made room for him, not just in the pew, but in our lives. He had observed that Jesus does more than just change our religious habits He shapes the entire story of our lives, and that's what made the difference. We can be a part of God's mission in the world. We show Him to be more beautiful and believable to those around us, and this is what it can look like here in our midst. Let me pray that God would do that in the midst of us. Father, we are often scared, we're often fearful for all kinds of reasons when we start talking about these sorts of things. But we know that You are with us in the midst of it and that You call us to it and promise to be with us in the midst of it. We pray that we would be overwhelmed with Your love and grace to us in Jesus such that we couldn't help but speak of the beauty and the believability of Jesus to those around us. And We pray in Christ's name. Amen.